Father, as we come to your word today, we come with a sense of expectation, with an acknowledgement of need, and a readiness to hear. I pray that you would enable each one of us, Lord, not only to hear from you today, but also to see the road around us through your eyes, to see the people around us through your eyes, and to see the opportunity you've blessed us with, the opportunity to be your eyes, your mouth, your hands and feet, your provision and promise to the people around us. But we can only do that in you, through you, and by you. And so it is you that we ask that you help us today as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Parables of patience is what we've been talking about. Next year, I plan to bring another sermon series on more parables of Jesus, probably around the same time of year, because there are so many wonderful stories that Jesus told. For any who might not have been with us in this series so far or might like a little bit of a refresher on just what a parable is, it's basically a simple story. And it uses symbolic meanings to convey moral or spiritual lessons. It was also a favored method of Jesus in his earthly teaching. Fully two-thirds of, excuse me, fully one-third of Jesus' teachings in the uh, Synoptic Gospels are parables. There are many more than what we have discussed in this current series. But each of them shares something in common, an innate sense of drama, vibrant imagery. These are the things that often make the parables some of the most memorable lessons that Jesus taught. And as we've seen in this series, one of the key principles that Jesus prioritizes in the teachings of the parables is patience. I know you've said it many times this year. But I'd like you to say it one more time. Would you say that word, patience? patience. And then I'll ask for your patience again because I'm going to make you say it many more times before the year is done. But as many times as we say it, may we receive it. May we believe that God enables us to have the kind of patience that God shows us. The parables of patience help us to understand what a valuable virtue it is in the development of our character, our integrity, our faith, and yes, even our perseverance unto victory. And indeed, as we've mentioned before, the very style of teaching in parables calls for a little bit of patience. We've seen many times in the series how the hearers of Jesus would come to him and say, we don't understand what you're saying, or we'd like you to explain it. And that's because parables are intended to provide information in a way that is memorable and dramatic and powerful, but in a way also which is not immediately accessible. It requires a sort of discipleship determination, and it requires a teacher. Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit as our helper. We have Jesus as our teacher. The Lord himself will help us to hear what the parables have to say, but it's up to you and I to lean into them today. Will you lean into the story of the traveler and the good Samaritan with me today? If so, say amen. Did you say it at home? I hope you did. I want you to lean into this story as well. It's probably one of the most familiar of Jesus' parables. Many people who've never read the Bible, maybe never even been to church, have heard of the Good Samaritan. In fact, the phrase Good Samaritan and the concept of someone who helps others, someone who is neighborly and loving and kind, and maybe particularly so to strangers and strangers in need, 
All of those ideas stem from this story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10. Yesterday, our event, Operation Christmas Child, in the shoebox gifts for kids around the world, is a program that is operated by an organization called Samaritan's Purse. And the reason that Samaritan's Purse is called Samaritan's Purse is because of the parable of the Good Samaritan, of a person that Jesus talked about as being willing to sacrifice, to spend out of their own purse, out of their own pocket, the way many of you did to fill those shoe boxes with gifts and toys and gospel greetings and practical items like toothbrushes and hairbrushes and things like that. And it came from you, what you have, because you realize that what you have came from God. And so you were willing to open your purse like a good Samaritan and share with those in need. Samaritan's Purse is an organization that exists to fulfill the commission, the mandate of this parable. So let's look at this parable today. And as familiar as it may seem to us, let's look at it with fresh eyes as well to get the best out of all that it has to offer us. Now, in order to really understand this story as Jesus' hearers would have heard it, to, to get it for the meaning that it was originally intended, we need to know something about those first century Jewish people that Jesus was one of and that he was teaching too. And we need to understand that for them, Samaritan was not a term, a, a, a title that evoked images of friendliness and neighborliness. It was the name of an enemy. There was a group of people, an ethno-religious group, and in fact, the group still exists today. You may not be aware of it, but in Israel today, there are still Samaritans, and they still practice and adhere to Samaritanism. And while there is probably some degree of uh, evolution or development or change in that ethno-religious group from 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus, it's not very much change. It is still a, a connected heritage. But in the days of Jesus, there was a great division and animosity that existed between the Jewish people and their close ethno-cultural cousins, as we might call them, the Samaritans. I'd like to take a moment and explain why to you. Here's a map of first century uh, Palestine. This is with the names that were in common usage during the time of the Roman occupation, during the life of Jesus. You can see on the southern end of the map here, Judea. By the way, what you're looking at here is basically primarily central Israel, with a little bit of the north and a little bit of the south included. But it's, the emphasis is on the central uh, portion of the nation. Just to orient you, up here is Galilee. This is where Jesus' family was from. So even though Jesus was born down in Bethlehem, which you can see way down here at the bottom of the map, his parents were originally from Nazareth, and you know that ultimately they returned to Nazareth. We'll hear more about that story next month, amen? It's the Christmas story. But in any case, Galilee is Jesus' home region, and here is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River running like a spine down the nation, all the way down into the Dead Sea. In this central region, we have a city called Samaria. The arrow is pointing to it there. And we have a region that carries the same name. It draws its name, the region does, from this city. 
And you may remember that that city was a capital city because at a certain point, following the era of, we've just looked at uh, um, King Saul and the United Kingdom of Israel, you know that we have a study in King David coming up next year, and that also is a united kingdom under his reign. Finally, David's son Solomon will rule also. But after the era of Solomon, the kingdom was ripped apart. There was a division. And I mention this not just to dig on history with you, but because it has to do with the division that will continue to be felt, the animosity and tension that will exist between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. When this kingdom divided, there was northern Israel and southern Israel. Northern Israel had its capital in Samaria. And so often, the entire nation was referred to also as Samaria. The way that we could refer to this nation as the US or America or the USA. And you would know that it's all referring to the same nation. Similarly, we could say Samaria and be referring to northern Israel. In the south, Judah, the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 sons of Israel. Those of you who took the 12 uh, sons of Israel with me are going to recognize that Judah is not only a son, but like all of those sons, also the, the founder of a tribe. And so the tribe of Judah was in the south. It was from the tribe of Judah that David came. And so it's from the tribe of Judah that, uh, uh, that Jesus comes as well. But here in Judah is Jerusalem, the capital in the south. And in the south, you had the temple. So when the kingdom split, the kingdom in the north determined, we can't have our temple in another country where we have this division between us. In fact, it was to reject that line of worship and to reject that line of kings, the Davidic line of kings, that those in the north decided to establish their own kingdom, and therefore their own capital, and therefore their own temple. Now, this went against the word of God. And the kings of the north engaged in idolatry over and over again. So the people of the south associated the north with false worship, with rebellion, with heresy and idolatry. Not good stuff. Whereas the people in the north resented the people in the south and became utterly persuaded that their capital, their temple, their temple mount were the real Jewish faith the real faith of Israel. So this is part of why there continued to be division and animosity. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel ultimately fell. It fell during the Neo-Assyrian Empire's exile. So the Neo-Assyrian Empire was a superpower that came against the northern kingdom. And God said that he allowed this Assyrian Empire to destroy the northern kingdom and to displace their monarchy and to come in and rule over them oppressively because of their disobedience. It's interesting to note that the name Samaria actually means watch or watchman. They were called to be people who would guard the truth of God and watch for what he had to say and, what he, and how he would lead them. And so they have continued to see themselves, these people in the north, uh, Samaritans, as they will ultimately be called, as watchers or guardians of the true faith. But the irony is that the Lord said to them, you haven't done that. In fact, you're misled and misguided. The other thing that the people in the South felt was that though the Samaritans said, we have remained pure, we are part of these northern tribes, 
the Judahites of the south said, no, they've been intermingled and intermixed with the Assyrians and all these other people that the Assyrian Empire brought in. And so, though it sounds quite offensive, and indeed it was, the Jewish people looked at Samaritans as mongrels or half-breeds. In other words, there was tremendous racism, tremendous ethnic prejudice on the part of the Jewish people towards the Samaritans. And there was the same kind of ethnic prejudice on the part of the Samaritans against the Jewish people. And it doesn't take much to know that these are some of the most deep divisions that we can find in the human race, because I'll remind you, the human race is a single race. We are all alike. We are all human. But we have this tremendous capacity, like brother against brother, like Cain against Abel, to see ourselves as at odds with one another. And so that is what took root between the Judahites and the South and the Samaritans of this central region to the north of Judea. Now, Jesus actually had some encounters with Samaritans. You'll remember that in the book of John, in chapter 4, he has to travel through Samaria. If you can remember that map in your mind, recognize that every time Jesus goes down to Jerusalem and then comes back up to Galilee, he's passing through what region? The center, Samaria. So when he goes through Samaria, he's in an area where there are still some Jewish people there, but it's predominantly Samaritan. And as Jewish people they are looked at with scorn and skepticism by the Samaritans. And as Jewish people, notwithstanding Jesus' attitude, many of those that are with him also look with scorn and skepticism and even judgment upon the Samaritans around them. You may remember that it was in Samaria when Jesus was receiving a very unwelcoming kind of reception from the people there that John and James, two of his closest apostles, came to him and said, should we call down fire from heaven to burn these villages up and the villagers in them? Should we call for God to destroy these Samaritans? After all, they were idolaters. They have a wrong idea about the faith. They have their own set of scriptures that they see as being accurate. But we know that it has been twisted by their tradition. Should we call down God's wrath upon them? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of. In other words, that's not the spirit of Christ. That's not what I came for. Jesus didn't come to destroy. Jesus came to save, to reach. And so when he saw the Samaritan woman at the well... He asked her for a drink of water. He humbled himself to ask for her help. And she was surprised being a Samaritan and a woman and he being a Jewish man. But he said to her, if you knew who it was that was asking you for water, you would ask me for water and I'd give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. And in that exchange with her, she says, oh, I see you're a prophet. Let me ask you now, we Samaritans say that up here, Mount Gerizim in the north, this is the real temple mount where the real temple should be. But you guys say it should be in Jerusalem in the south. So what do you have to say about that, Mr. Prophet? And Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, you are wrong. You Samaritans have it wrong. But he had something else. 
because it's not a debate for him, it's an invitation. He says, actually, the time is coming, and it's here, right now in front of you, where you can realize that what God is looking for is not people who can rigorously follow every religious law, but rather who devoutly desire the spirit of the Lord and to worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus was often a bridge builder with Samaritans. In fact, in the story of Jesus healing 10 lepers and only one coming back to give thanks, do you know that the one that came back was a Samaritan? Nevertheless, there were times when Jesus was invited to preach and reach out to Samaritans or to other Gentiles, and he said, no, I've come to the children of Israel. So Jesus recognized that there was a reality to the errancy, the mistake, and the confusion that was rooted in the history and tradition of Samaritanism. But his purpose was not to fault people for their failures, but to find people in their need and reach them with his truth, a truth that invited them to know the truth and to be set free. All of these things are sort of wrapped up neatly bundled in the idea of the tension between Samaritans and Jewish people that's so important for us to have as a sort of backdrop, a landscape, a, a canvas, if you will, for this story to be carried out on. Now, why does Jesus tell this story to begin with? It only shows up in Luke chapter 10, but there are other places in other Gospels where the beginning, the initiation, the, 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 the sort of instigation for the story shows up. So our focus will be in Luke 10 today, but we will also make some reference to other places in other Gospels where you can find a little bit of additional information or context. Suffice it to say that when Jesus tells this parable in the Gospel of Luke, he's doing it in response to a question. Someone has asked him a question. Someone has put him to the test. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And the question is essentially, ultimately, at least the question after the question. There's a couple of questions that get posed. And the one that ultimately triggers the parable of the Good Samaritan is the question to define a term. And the term is neighbor. We are told by the word of God, even by the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Leviticus 19.18 says. It's part of the Torah. Part of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the, the sort of holy of holy of the Jewish scriptures. But what is a neighbor? The question is posed to Jesus. And when Jesus answers, he answers by giving a story in which Jewish elite, religious figures, think of it like a, a, uh, a, a seminary professor and a, and a church pastor, or a bishop and a priest. Think of the most elevated, educated, and ostensibly righteous people that you can in the Christian church. And think about Jesus telling a story in which those people show no care or concern for someone else, in which they protect themselves through layers of legalism in order to prevent them from having to spend anything or risk anything to help a stranger, even though that stranger is one of their own, a member of their own community, and then imagine that Jesus describes somebody that you would say, that person can't possibly have the right faith. Maybe it would be more effective, and I don't mean this in any way disparagingly, but maybe it would be more effective if you realized that it might be like Jesus coming and telling a story in which a Muslim shows the greatest love and wisdom and generosity and graciousness 
when a Jewish person and a Christian person couldn't care less. Or maybe you could think of it like Jesus telling a story in which an atheist and a secularist and somebody who maybe espouses all the political ideas, whatever they might be, that you hate the most. If you're a Republican, you can make them a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, you can make them a Republican. If you're an Independent, you can make them either one. But whoever it is that really gets your blood boiling, and Jesus tells a story about that one and says, and that's the one who showed the greatest wisdom, who is most like God, who really shows what the love of God for a neighbor is like. That's what it was when he said it about a Samaritan. It was a surprise that shocked and even probably offended many of his Jewish audience. The traveler and the Good Samaritan has a number of individuals in it. And I want you to think deeply about each one of these characters that we will find in the story that Jesus tells. We're going to look at the parable itself and the immediate context in which it comes. So we have 12 verses to look through together, you and I, in the course of today's message. And maybe not surprising to you, I broke it down into what seems to me three coherent parts. And each of these can be somewhat predicated upon a certain kind of question. So the first is, what must I do? I mentioned to you that Jesus tells the story because a question is posed to him. And the first question that is posed to him is, what must I do in order to live eternally with God, in order to get to heaven, you could think of it that way, in order to, because I think the one who is asking it has something more in mind than just how can I enter into the paradise of afterlife, how can I enter into the fullness of the kingdom? What must I do to be truly a resident, a citizen of the kingdom of God? That's the premise for this parable. In other words, that's the basis. That's what the, the parable is primarily going to try and answer. One thing that I want to mention here is this parable has, like most do, a relatively straightforward interpretation, and it's the paramount interpretation. It's the thing that's most important that you and I garner from it, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Sometimes people argue. I know that's shocking to you. People would argue about what the word of God says or what it means. But sometimes people argue as to whether the parable if it means that, can mean anything else. I think you know where I stand on this, and it's because I think the word of God itself is fairly evident, and is, is the tradition that has, uh, that has revered that word over many generations. And that is to say that when God is making a point, and there can be a very clear and strong and central point, it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't other things that he is saying in that passage as well. In other words, there's a central understanding of what this parable is about, and I want to be sure that you and I get it. But there's also many things for you and I to consider that are additional to that point, that are harmonious with it, never at odds with it, but that can augment it, that can enrich and expand what this story is about. The premise, though, is how can I be the kind of person God wants me to be? How can I be a kingdom person? How can I live in the way that God demands. And the response that comes is, love God and love your neighbor. That's what all the law and the prophets teach, Jesus says. And so then the questioner responds with, well, that's well and good. That's my interjection. But who is my neighbor? Ah, there's the rub, as Hamlet said, by way of Shakespeare, or Shakespeare by way of Hamlet. 
In other words, there's the tricky part. Love God, well, I think we all can understand what that means. Although, here's one of those added points of consideration. Every time Jesus tells a parable, isn't it a clue that he's saying, here's something you think you understand, but I'm going to show you a different perspective. Here's something that you think you've really got a grip on, and I'm just going to surprise you by pulling back the veil and showing you a different perspective. Not because he's trying to trick us or trap us or trip us up, but because very often we think we know something that we don't really know. Or we know something, but we don't show it. It's just living up here. Or maybe it's just dead up here. It's like something in a drawer, a key in a drawer. Here's the keys to my office and my car. But if I put them in the drawer and leave them in the drawer and never take them out of the drawer, of what use is the key? So sometimes people say to Jesus, I've got the keys, but I want to see if you understand them. And when Jesus tells the parable, often what he does is take the key and put it into the ignition and turn it on and say, there's somewhere to go with this, and you're not going there. Or... Are you? That's the rub. That's the problem. If you want to say that you love God, then you've got to know how to love your neighbor. So it's actually a very central question, isn't it? Who is my neighbor? And if I can't rightly answer that, if I don't really understand it, and for heaven's sake, if I don't show it, then the implication is I don't love God really at all. When this problem produces the parable, and the parable has such a shocking twist in it, it also comes with a promise. The twist is to care about people that you wouldn't normally care about. The twist is the risk, the cost, to spread yourself out and give away for the good of somebody that might look to you like an enemy, that might indeed be to you an enemy, who might consider themselves an enemy. But there is a promise with this parable, and it's found in the quote of the Good Samaritan to the innkeeper at the end of the story, who says, whatever you spend to care for this man, I will repay you. So a premise, a problem, and a promise. Will you say those three things? A premise, a problem, and a promise. What must I do to be a part of God's kingdom? How should I be living in it? That's the question that's going to be posed to Jesus. And it's posed on this certain occasion. Here we are in Luke 10, verse 25, going forward, by an expert in the law who stands up to test Jesus. Another way that you might see this translated in your text is a lawyer. And that's essentially what he is, a Torah lawyer. In other words, a Hebrew Bible expert a scholar of the scriptures. Elsewhere, the term scribe is used for these individuals. So this man is a professional scribe. That means he's someone who is trained for and dedicated and devoted to, look at how honorable this is, the study, the copying, and the teaching of the Hebrew Bible, of the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the law, and the prophets, and the oral traditions of the elders and the rabbis that have accrued around it. This is somebody who is all about the word. He loves the Bible. 
and he knows it backwards and forward. He studies it. He trains himself in it. He teaches others about it. This is a guy like me. I mean, that's my job. So when I hear this story, and there's a, there's a sense of some uh, scrutiny on the part of Jesus, of this Torah lawyer, I've got to recognize that the scrutinizing eye of Jesus, the scrutinizing eye of Jesus, is upon me too. And I want it to be. I want Jesus to look at me and see me for who I really am. And I want to be able to see myself through his eyes. If you're someone who loves the Bible, if you're someone who studies the scripture and aims to teach it to others, and you feel like that is a settled situation in my life, that is a settled circumstance of my soul, don't get too comfortable in that. I don't mean don't pursue that. I don't mean don't value it. I mean don't assume it. If you're really going to be a teacher of the word to others, and I would that you were, even though Paul himself says not all of you should teach, but the reason he says that is because there's a heavy burden and responsibility with it. But all of us must witness. And what is it that we witness to? To the Lord. And how can we witness without his word? So all of us need to know the word, but we must remember that we come to the word as students, even if we are teachers. And if we're not a student, we shouldn't be a teacher. And we come with whatever expertise God may have granted us and experience may have given to us, we come to learn. Be ready and willing to shift, to grow. Don't become calcified in a certainty about what something means that ends up making you one who rather than being ready to hear from Jesus, you're ready to test Jesus. Because that's what this particular uh, lawyer is going to do. He's putting Jesus to the test. Now in Matthew 22, there is a record of this episode or at least some very similar episode. Uh, there's a, some slight variance to it and it doesn't include the parable of the Good Samaritan. But you have basically have the same thing. You have a scribe coming to Jesus and asking this question, what is the essence of the law? What is the most important thing? Because whatever is most important to God, that's what's got to be most important to me if I am going to enter into the kingdom. And in Matthew 22, this individual is acknowledged as being a member not only of the scribal profession, but of the sect of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were particularly moralistic, they had a particularly high view of scripture, and they were very devoted to the Jewish faith tradition. This man is coming not to get information from Jesus for his own edification, but rather to test Jesus. He wants to see, does Jesus meet my standard? Friend, I want to pause for just a moment and say, when you are hearing an evangelical message, if you're a believer, this is something that you can maybe put in the category of, remember before you knew the Lord or before you were walking with the Lord. When you heard those outreaches, those invitations to give your life to the Lord, remember what you felt like. Remember what you heard and how you heard it. But maybe there's someone today who's got a bit of skepticism about God, and you have some questions for God. Fine. Here's someone asking Jesus a question, and Jesus is happy to answer, and thank God that he did. I'm glad that man asked the question, because I'm glad that Jesus answered, because you and I get the benefit of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Amen. But let me say this. 
Is it really for you to test God? Or is it rather that you should test yourself according to the measure of God? I mean, in other words, who are you to demand that God must meet your moral standards? Who are you to say, well, if God is really good, then X, Y, Z couldn't have happened? How would you know? Are you good? And if you say to yourself, I am good, then see yourself in this scribe and recognize that what Jesus said is, there is no one good but God. You and I are not in the position to test God. It doesn't mean he doesn't allow us to ask questions. And if you have earnest questions, then ask them earnestly. But don't ask them skeptically, because if you ask with skepticism, then skepticism is all that remains for you. And if you're someone who says, well, I value skepticism, well, then turn it on yourself. For a moment, be skeptical about your morality, about your ideas. If you think that skepticism is so essential, then turn it on yourself. Because I can assure you that God can withstand any amount of skepticism that has shown his way. But the point of the Lord is not to win an argument with you or to overwhelm you in a debate, but to overwhelm you with his love. And his love is found when we humble ourselves before the Lord. There's three other uses in the New Testament of this term for test that is applied here in this situation of the question of the scribe to Jesus. Two of them show up when Jesus is being tested by Satan, when he's being tempted in the wilderness. And Satan is saying, if you're really the son of God, why don't you turn this bread, this stone into bread? Or if you're really the son of God, why don't you throw yourself off of, the, off of this uh, temple mount? The angels will carry you. If you're really the son of God, why don't you worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth? Jesus always responds out of the word of God to those tests. And in one instance that is recorded in both Matthew 4, 7 and Luke 4, 12, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not test the Lord your God. Satan is saying, why don't you throw yourself off of this temple mount and the angels who have charge over you will protect you. But Jesus says, I wasn't brought here to try and test whether God will be true to his word or not. I already know that the Father is true to his word, and I'm relying upon that. So this idea of testing is about doubting. And I don't mean the reasonable, rational doubts that we can grapple with God about, where we can come and say, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief, right? Like the man who asked for healing for his family. What I'm talking about is dubiousness and pride, a kind of attitude that says, it's God's fault, and what's God done for me lately? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10.9, Paul utilizes this term to say we should not test Christ. In other words, we shouldn't doubt him and try and make him prove his goodness to us and expect that we're going to get a good result. That's what the people of Israel did back in Numbers 21 when it says very specifically in uh, that passage, verses 4 to 9, that the children of Israel became what? Impatient with God because they had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt but they were in the wilderness and they said we don't have any good food and we don't have enough water and we hate this food that you're giving us which was manna from heaven it was the miracle of bread of heaven every day and they said we're sick of it we're tired of that and when is God going to deliver us now and the Lord sent serpents in their midst 
So he was stung and bit them. And there was death. Because whenever there's that kind of dubiousness, it is death to faith, and ultimately it becomes the death of the flesh. It produces the results that the enemy desires, which is to devour those who give themselves to that. So rather than testing the Lord, let's trust the Lord. Will you repeat that with me? Rather than testing the Lord, let's trust the Lord. But here's the test that this lawyer asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I receive the life of God that is everlasting? And Jesus said, well, what's, what's in that word that you know so well? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, which is Deuteronomy 6.5, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are two quotes from the Torah, from the books of Moses. One is from Deuteronomy 6.5, which is the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It is to be prayed twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, and even to this day, devout Orthodox Jews, pray the Shema twice a day. Hear that the Lord is one, and love the Lord with one heart and all your heart. And then Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, good, that's right. All the law and the prophets hang on this. In other words, that's at the core, the heart of God. You're exactly right. If you do that, says Jesus, you will live. Notice that he says, you will live here and now. You'll be alive right now. The kind of life that can never die. Even when your body dies, the life of the glory of the goodness of that truth, of who God is and how he is, that is more than just your love for him, but also the love that you show others in him, that is life, and it's life everlasting. The problem then is, who is this neighbor that I have to show it to? I'll love God, but what neighbor am I supposed to love? And notice that when the lawyer asks about this, he does so in order to justify himself. The term that's translated here, justified, means to show or evidence something, a person, an action, a thing, to be truly just, truly righteous, truly wise. It's a term that shows up many times in the scriptures. One of them is in Luke 16, 15, when Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, just like this gentleman, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. In Romans 2.13, Paul uses it, saying, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. So let me put it this way. It's not the scribes who study and copy and teach the law, but have it like keys in the drawer, like dust on the shelf, without the living love that is shown to others. Those are not the ones who are going to be declared righteous, but those who actually show mercy and compassion to whomever is in need. That's real righteousness. So that, that whole attempt on the part of the lawyer to justify himself really reveals how unjust his thinking is. He says, who is my neighbor? How can I limit this love? Surely there is some category. Think about Peter saying to Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? It's a similar kind of question. The point is, I'm willing to do it to a certain degree. There's a certain group of people that can be my neighbor, but how many? And whom? And how many times do I have to be patient with them? 
And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Let me answer that with a parable. That's where you know that Jesus is saying, you've answered well. You understand the word, or at least you know it. But do you show it? What would it look like? It would look like this. A traveler traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is where, in the old-fashioned movie, you'd hear, bum, 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 because it's a bad road. The road from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho is where the traveler is attacked by robbers. He's beaten up, stripped, and left for dead. The road to Jericho still exists. It's a dramatic road, winding, twisting, curving. Jerusalem is about 2,400 feet above sea level. It's about the level of Palmdale. Yeah. Jericho is about 825 feet below sea level. That means that it's about uh, 600 feet lower than the Salton Sea, if you've been down there uh, to the south of California, or uh, about 550 feet lower than Death Valley, yeah. which is a pretty intensely hot, dry, arid place. Because once you're below sea level, that's frequently the conditions that arise. And so from a relatively moderate dry climate to a, a desert environment, that's the road that you're traveling. And you make that drop. As you can see, it's uh, almost 3,000 uh, uh, feet, or perhaps more, uh, in about 18 miles. Now, on foot, that's a fairly good walk. But it's still a very short distance to make such a dramatic drop. And so that means you've got a very heavy incline from up above Jerusalem to down below Jericho. So it's a journey down. He's traveling down. And while downhill might sound good, he's traveling into the desert. He's traveling into the arid place, winding roads, rocks, and what is known to be frequented by brigands, bands of robbers who take advantage of the isolation of the traveler on the road. Here's a map, kind of a graphic um, uh, image where you can see Jerusalem here in the high ground and following this route, which is a route, by the way, that Jesus traveled up when he would come up to Jerusalem, all the way down to this, this uh, uh, lowered basin here. Another view. You can see that it reminds me, actually, a little bit of where I live in Santa Clarita or Canyon Country. Lots of canyons, lots of places for people to hide around the corner. Lots of steep uphills on the way of going downhill. And even today, there is known to be frequent robberies that occur among tourists there. So the lawyer wanting to justify himself says, who is my neighbor? Sorry, the text here, just as I've mentioned before, sometimes gets messed up between my screen and yours. So there's a little uh, blip on your screen there. We'll, we'll try and fix that for next time. He says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story about a man traveling on a road that is known for its treachery who is attacked, robbed, beaten, and left for dead. Now then, a priest happens to be traveling down this same road. And he sees the man. Does he go and help him? Not only does he not help the man, he goes to the other side of the road. He goes as far over as possible. Next, along comes a Levite. And the Levite does the same thing, passing over to the other side of the road to create as much distance as possible. Both the priest and the Levite are Jewish figures of religious righteousness and approbation and honor. They're supposed to be the best. It's like a judge and a cop walk by and do nothing. 
a senator, and well, I don't know, you may not have a high view of senators, but <laughs> a senator and a president walk by. They'd probably be fighting with each other, but they don't help the man on the road. Now, these priests and Levite, they're descendants of Levi, another one of Israel's 12 sons, another one of the sons of Jacob, that God had assigned under the leadership of Moses and his brother Aaron to be temple attendants and the leaders of the worship rituals. The, the priests were the highest category, the Kohanim. These were the primary religious leaders of the Jewish people in that time. They were direct descendants of Aaron. And Aaron, of course, was the first of the high priests of ancient Israel. The Levites were all the other descendants of the tribe of Levi. And these were the members of that family, the Levitical tribe, who fulfilled various auxiliary functions of temple worship. Sacrifice preparation and carrying of the meats and the waters and the grains and musical worship, musicians and singers, staffing of the temple guard corps as, as, as guards and soldiers and so forth. These are the holiest people that the audience of Jesus can conceive of. They are expected to exhibit righteousness, to be the most aligned with the will of God. If you would expect anyone to show you the kind of personality, the kind of character and compassion that God has, it should be these people. But instead, they show no care or concern for this poor man at all. And this man is not the Samaritan. This man is not an enemy. This is a Jewish man. This is a person of the flock that they're supposed to be leading and caring for. It's like there was a, a Christian guy walking down the road who got pulled over, pulled out of his car, beaten up, robbed, and left naked and for dead. And the pastor walked by and went to the other side of the street. And the judge walked by and went to the other side of the street. And then an ex-con who was uh, out on bail came by and said, how can I help you? Here's a shirt. Take my jacket. I'm going to get you some medicine. Let me take you to the hotel down the street. These, these two, the, the, the Levite and the priest, they may have said, well, we have, we have legal and holy reasons for not helping. They may have thought he was dead. They may have been concerned that he was dead. And if it was a dead body, then under the law, they would be defiled if they touched him. They didn't want to get close because, after all, they wouldn't be able to carry on with their worship. But at what point is the worship if you're not helping the person that God has said, if you really love me, love him? So you see, if you are saying, I love God, I love God, I love God, ah, I don't want to get near that guy. He stinks. That guy's nuts. That guy's dangerous. Okay, understood. But what God is saying is, if you love me so much, show some love to them. Is there a cost involved? Yes. Is there a risk? If there was no risk, everybody would do it. Jesus said, you think it's so great that you love your family? Terrific. Everybody loves their family. You say, well, you should be my family. Most people love their family, OK? <laughs> to love your mom and dad and your kids. You know what? Big deal. You say, well, I'm offended by that. OK, get offended. It's not that amazing that you would feel love for that. How about showing love for somebody who spits in your face? I'm not saying you shouldn't love your children. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your parents. I'm saying God wants more than that from you. That's a baseline. Of course, we should show love to each other in the body of Christ. But if we can't show love to people who aren't believers, 
who don't share our beliefs, who don't share our background, who don't look like us or talk like us or think like us or sound like us, then we are like those scribes and Levites and priests who are so impressed with ourselves, but we weren't willing to take the risk to pay a cost that God himself would say, if you would just give to them, I'll repay you. The scripture says, whoever gives to the poor is lending to God. Let me tell you what that means. God says, I'm going to pay you back. I'm not going to pay you back as though it were just what you gave. It's a loan. I'm going to pay you interest. You want to be rich? I have a better deal for you than any lottery ticket could ever offer. Give away in the name of God. Not only will he give you back everything you've given away, he'll give you more. There's absolutely no cost, no expense, no risk that you can take if it's in his name, if it's for his purpose. And his purpose is that you would show your love for him by loving the people who are in need around you. And then God says, I will repay you. The fact of the matter is he's already paid us more than we could ever repay. We already have eternal life. So give out of the abundance of what you already have. A Samaritan, a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan who's got the wrong religion and the wrong beliefs, but he's got the right heart because he sees a person in need and he takes pity on him. The point of this story is not to say the Samaritans are better people than the Jews. The point of the story is certainly not to say it doesn't matter that the Samaritans have the wrong idea. If you get that confusion, go to John chapter 4 and see Jesus saying it matters what you believe. But what matters most of all is who you are, how you live, what your heart says about you. Because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Your words reveal your heart. Do you have a heart to help others? Then you have the heart of God. It says that the Samaritan took pity on him. The terminology in the Greek, it actually involves the bowels. Because in the Greek language and in the ancient Near Eastern world, the idea was that emotions were bound up in the bowels. Think of it this way. It's a gut reaction. He has a gut reaction. And wouldn't you? There, there, there should be a gut reaction to seeing somebody in the gutter like that, right? But sometimes we harden ourselves. I mean, I have to say, living here in LA, here in our church, it becomes difficult to look around at the grotesque need around us and not begin to try and insulate yourself. But what God says is, let it move you in your guts with empathy and compassion. That's not to say that, you know, the situation here of somebody being victimized, that seems to us very empathetic. It's not to say that there isn't a reason to look at people who are doing harm to themselves and recognize that part of helping them is helping them to understand that they're doing harm to themselves. But there should be an empathy within us that is supernaturally endowed by the Spirit. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on him oil and wine, these are imagery of anointing. It's for healing. The oil and the wine were meant to be antiseptic and a balm. The wine would have qualities to help clean a wound. And the oil would have qualities to help heal the wound and relieve suffering. But they are also symbolic. They are symbols of the spirit. 
because the oil is the oil of the Spirit and of the sacrifice of Christ because the wine is his blood. In fact, it is not unusual for many people to see in the Good Samaritan an image of the Good Messiah. That Jesus is the one who looks like a stranger. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They crossed to the other side of the street. They tested him and debated him, but to as many as were willing to receive him because they were in need, he helped them in their need. He gave them of his blood and of his spirit. And then he brought them on his own donkey to an inn and said to the innkeeper, take care of him. I've got to go away. I want you to look after him. And I will repay you for any extra expense you may have. I remember many years ago teaching this story in a vacation Bible school when I was probably in my 20s. I was in college. And I was talking with the kids about the story. And it had never dawned on me before that I'm in the story. Because you and I are like that innkeeper. Jesus has come and saved people. And actually, you and I can see ourselves on the road. If we're wise, we can see ourselves as the one who was lying dead in our sin, robbed by the enemy of every righteous thing that God would have desired in our life, and left naked and ashamed. And Jesus came to us to heal us, to save us, to anoint us. And he brought us into the inn of his body. He brought us in to the inn. And now he's made you and I the ones who can say to others, come in to the church and we will care for you at our own expense because God is providing for you through us. That's the Samaritan's purse. And Jesus has said, I'm coming back. So I'm going to check on how you've taken care of the ones who were most in need. When Jesus comes to us, we don't want him to say, I put right in your path, or I brought your path right across the place where someone was naked and bleeding, bruised and burglared, and you crossed to the other side of the road and kept on going because you wanted your own kind of righteousness. I don't want to hear that from him, do you? I want him to come and say to me, you took me in. You comforted me. You cared for me. And I'll say, when did I do that? And Jesus will say, when you did it, for the one that I brought you, you did it for me. Don't wait to find them on the road. Go find them in the jail. Find them in the prison. Find them in the mission place. Find them on your street. Find them in your workplace. Find them wherever they are. They are everywhere. There's a world full of travelers. But there are very few good Samaritans. Will you be one? Let Jesus make you a lover of people's souls, a helper of the hurt and needy. Don't be proud, be humble, and don't be afraid to risk and to give. Jesus said to the man, who among these was the neighbor? And the man replied, the one who had mercy on him. That gut reaction there's at least five times in scripture where the miracles that Jesus does is because he's moved in his guts with empathy for people in need. You want to see miracles happen in your life. You want the ministry of miracles to occur through you? Let the miracle of empathy, compassion, mercy overwhelm you in the spirit because our world needs it more than ever today.
He needs people who will go and do likewise. I want to conclude by saying this parable underscores from Jesus himself, from his own mouth, what genuine faith is supposed to look like. It should prioritize patient, sacrificial care in the name of Jesus. This doesn't mean that you're running all over your tail and hopping all over yourself to try and impress everybody else with how good you are and how kind you are. It means that you are available and open as you walk the road of life to let yourself be moved by the need that will be evident all around you. And that you will show it to strangers or maybe just the strange. People who seem strange to you. They're weird in their thoughts or the way they talk according to you but you're going to love them anyway because they're made in the image of God and because God has a plan and a purpose for them that you can share with them. And even people who might call themselves your enemy or who might treat you as an enemy or whom you might feel like as an enemy, Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies and show compassion to those who curse you. Love them like you love yourself. And somebody out there says, well, I don't love myself very much. Maybe the problem is that you need to learn how to love by showing more love to others. Maybe you're going to start to finally experience the love of God for you when you start to show the love of God to others. What must I do? Here's what we must do, Love God by loving the people around you, and especially the people that are in most need, the poor, the confused, the angry, the oppressed, the imprisoned, the desperate, the sick, the lonely, the old, the orphaned. Show them love. Enemies, adversaries, antagonists, people who are rude and obnoxious to you. Don't just act like you love them. Let God move you in your innermost being because you know what? God loves those people. He's known them since they were in their mother's womb. He knows everything about them, and no matter how mean, nasty, arrogant, ugly they may appear to you, he died for them. So ask him to show you them from his perspective. When you see their need and you know his love, you'll move with power because there's a promise. God will give you everything you need to care for them. God will protect you as you take risks for him, and God will return and when he returns, he will reward you. So go and do likewise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you that you found us in the gutter. We thank you that you turned towards us. Truly, Lord, your righteousness was such that you could have just kept going forward. You didn't need us. We needed you. We didn't love you. You loved us. And because you love us and freely gave yourself to us, we have freely received. Now teach us to freely to give. I pray, Lord, for anyone who may be that person on the road today who's been beaten by life, who's been victimized, who finds themselves feeling naked, ashamed, afraid, at a great loss. And I pray that right now, Lord Jesus, you would be the good Samaritan that would reach them and tell them, I'm with you. I come to anoint you with oil. I come to wash and cleanse you with the wine of my sacrificial blood. I'm picking you up 
and putting you in my arms right now. And I pray, Lord, for any of us that have been that legalist, that proud, vain person that crossed to the other side of the road, that you would forgive us, that you would humble us, that you would help us to show love and compassion to others without any expectation of return, without any desire to proclaim or promote it. In fact, help us to do it in secret so that you, Father, who are in secret, will see in secret. Because we're not doing it for a claim. We're not doing it for any other reward than the fact that you who have loved us have put that love in us. And we want to show it to others. And so, Lord, help us to patiently persevere in being those who shine the light and love of Christ to every person in need around us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you all.